Do you know the drill? Let's stand in honor of God's Word. Colossians chapter 2. Get your Bibles out, get your iPhones out, get your iPads out. But get a Bible in your hand somewhere. If you don't have one, you can take the one that's in the pew uh, in front of you. If you don't own it, take it with you today. Put your name in it and bring it back next week. How's that? Let's look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. For I want you to know how great a struggle... I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea and all of those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all. Every, the whole enchilada, so to speak, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. Verse 5, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Heavenly Father, we come with expectant hearts Teach us today, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. How many of you have allergies? Just curious. This has nothing to do with the message. Are we having an allergy kind of day? Because I feel like I am. If I'm not, then don't touch me or shake hands with me. But I'm voting for allergy today. Wish lists. When you think of the idea of a wish list, what do you have in mind? When you think of wish list, this would be audience participation. All right, wish list, what do you think of? Yes, physical items on a wish list. What else? Birthday wish list, what else? Santa Claus, yes. You think about gifts, things that you want. If you notice on our opening slide, every one of us has a wish list. This says tables, chairs, linens, china, glassware. Maybe that's a wedding uh, gift list of some sort. But you know in Colossians today, where we're at in Colossians 2, Paul had a wish list. And we're representing these wish lists by these boxes here today. There will be a takeaway at the end of the sermon. You're going to get a, a comment card out. And I want you to be thinking during the course of this sermon, what is your wish for our church and what you're thinking, let's compare it to what Paul's wish was for the Colossian church. Let's see if they add up. But whether they do or don't, afterwards, every single person in this room, take a comment card, put your wish or your dream or your prayer for our church right here in this box. It will be a test. One has a slit in it and the other one does not. We'll see if we get them into the proper box right there. So there we go. What is your wish list? And I believe that Paul has a spiritual wish list. This, this wish list is something that he's pursuing for the church that he's never even visited. And so what is his wish list? He has five things. By the way, to help you find the scripture, if you don't have a Bible, it's on page 833 in the Pew Bible if you, if you uh, don't know how to get to Colossians. Generally, you just start in the middle and we're taking a right turn to page 833. All right? Principle number one, what's his first wish for the church? Realize that struggle is great, so be strong. Let's reread verse one. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have, been, have not seen me face to face. Now last week, we talked a little bit about this, that suffering's in every part of the Bible. We could have connected this section with last week's section, and it's a, it's a reaffirmation of the fact that the Christian life, there will be a struggle. And that struggle, that word, the Greek word for struggle, is the Greek word agony. 
and, and I'm in agony right now, actually. Um, and so, excuse me, but this is not fun. <clears throat> He's saying that there's this great internal conflict with him. Now, what was the conflict about? I think there were several things. Number one, remember, this is the one church that he has never been to, one of the two, that he didn't visit. He had written to them, but he had other people doing the work. And that's why he says, for all of you who have not seen me face to face, he's reminding me, I know you haven't seen me and you're listening to me and I'm asking you to do these things. And it could be easy from their standpoint, like who are you and why are you telling us what to do? But he's agonizing for them because I think he wishes he could have been there. Where is he at this time? Remember again, he's in, the, in Rome in prison. So the struggle is great. It reminds me of David Brainerd, who was a great missionary uh, uh, and he was friends with the great uh, revivalist preacher, Jonathan Edwards. Some of you don't know this, but Brainerd died when he was 29 years old of tuberculosis. And it was years later that Edwards published excerpts from his journal. In fact, uh, Jonathan Edwards had lived with, the Brainerd, uh, with, uh, with David Brainerd. And one of his publications in his journal, this is what he said about David Brainerd and wrestling on behalf of somebody else. It says, he wrestled with God in prayer. That was his Monday, April 19th, 1742 entry. And he went on to say this, God enabled me so to agonize in prayer that I was quite wet with sweat, though in the shade and in the wind cool. He was agonizing over the people that God had brought him to. Now, I want to just put up, for those of you who are like geography, uh, it says that his struggle was not only for the Colossian church, but for Laodicea. So remember, this letter was being sent around not only to the Colossi church, but those in Laodicea and probably Hierapolis. Uh, and those are about 11 miles apart. So let's put it in context. If you live in Westlake, uh, Laodicea is on the west side of Moore Park. And Hierapolis is like headed into Simi Valley. That's kind of the triangle there. So they had their own kind of Conejo Valley. And this, this book, this letter is being sent to all of those uh, folks there. And, and the bottom line is he wants to stem the tide of these heretical preachers and teachers who are already promoting their views that uh, were very different from the gospel. Already there are counterfeits, there are imitators who are trying to confuse the beloved, the believers, with the truth. And so Paul is concerned and so he writes to them. My question to you when you think about this first point that we struggle, that we agonize. That's part of our Christian experience. Is there anybody we agonize about? I mean, when I mean, it really comes down to it, who, who do I agonize about? Well, those of you who are parents, I think I know who you agonize about. They're in that room over there and they're in the front section here, and they're scattered throughout this audience. So parents, we get it. We know how to agonize for our, our kids. And I want to speak to high school and junior high kids for just a moment. I want to thank you for sitting here in the front sections, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the splash zone. Yeah, I do. And the reason I do is because every time I see you here in church, it reminds me that i got to pray for you more effectively than I do. I had the privilege of going to the high school group Wednesday night, just hung out with them a little bit. I was so impressed with the level of engagement with the word of God with our youth pastor, John Nungester. They did the parable of the four soils and I was thinking, what a great opportunity. If I were a high school kid, I wanna be there on Wednesday night. I'd wanna be in that small group that meets right after our service where we're discussing the word. You see, because our parents agonize for our kids, but I want to ask you, who do you agonize for who maybe isn't a part of your family? Do you have anybody on a list that you say, these are the top three or four people that are far from God, that I'm desperate. I'm so desperate I, I sweat bullets over this because I want them to hear and see the love of Jesus. So realize the struggle is great and that we agonize for people who are far from God. Secondly, remember to maintain loving unity. The second wish that Paul had for the Colossian church was that they would maintain loving unity, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. 
Now, I want to get you, you to get your game face on here because I'm going to spend a lot of time on one sentence, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. I want to talk a little bit about unity. And in your notes, I put together a little outline. And um, I'm going to talk about, first of all, that we need a strong heart to survive in a godless world. And then I'm going to talk about unity. For the first part, let's talk about what it means to, to have a strong heart uh, to survive in a godless world. Now, I want you to note in your notes there that it says that their hearts may be encouraged. Encouraged. That's that word parakaleo. That's the, the word that we normally translate to come alongside, to encourage, to comfort. But actually, in this text, that word encouraged might be better. This is one time where I probably diverge from the New American Standard. I would say that that would be better translated, that their hearts may be strengthened because it ties better with being knit together in love, the, the idea of being strengthened. And the heart isn't this just emotionally fluttery thing. When he uses the word heart here, he's talking about the center of your personality, your emotions, your will, and your decision-making capacity. It's not an emotional feel-good kind of a thing. It's we need a strong disposition. We have to have a strong inner character. We have to have a strong sense of this is what's right. And he says we have to encourage people because we live in a godless world. Now, how many of you are knitters? You, you knit. I needed to have called you because I wanted a sample. I'll do it. And by the way, if you're knitters, I am not opposed to people knitting while I'm preaching. As long as you make a nice little bonnet for me. To, no, that would, someone might actually do that. Forget that. But the idea of being knit together in love. When you are knitting, I'm not a knitting expert, but I believe that it involves two little rods that are made of metal things and they're sharp and it actually requires you to have some manual dexterity. But the amazing thing about knitters is that they can watch TV, knit, and carry on a conversation all at the same time. Is this not true, knitting friends? Notice I did not say knitting ladies because this is an equal opportunity activity. Um, I, I'm not sure if I've met any guy who knits, but I'm just, do you, Bill is a knitter. There you have it right there, front row, Bill Heatley, <laughs> knitting from Bill at 11. So the bottom line is you're doing this thing and, and this knitting together requires f c connecting the thread together, the yarn, the, the fabric. And that's what it's supposed to be like when we're in unity. It's like we've been knit together like this in unity. Now, the bottom line is, is it a knit together based on what? It's based on love. John 13, 35, the world will be attracted to you because of your love for one another. Now, that brings up this point before we get to unity. Well, of course I love you because I like you. So let me ask you a question. What if you don't like the person? Do we get a free pass because... It's kind of hard to have our hearts encouraged and being knit together when you don't like someone. Okay, just a short meddling time here. Some of you don't like each other. Are you kidding me? Yeah, actually, you know, your family, you don't have a choice, in, but your friends, you get to choose, right? And in the body of Christ, the reason it works it's because we make a choice to set aside our agenda and for the good of the entire body, we have to. We have to love one another. It's a command, it's an imperative. Love one another. You say, what if they've been a total jerk to me? Well, you have a couple options. You can pray that they will go to another church so you don't have to, <laughs> so you don't have to see them every week. You can pray for your own heart and ask for a heart of forgiveness even though you've been provoked, you've been wounded, you've been maybe even damaged. Or you can ask God to do a miracle and say, would you heal their heart and heal our heart so that somehow we can be knit together again? Now you say, well that's impossible. Let's look at this in the context of unity and you can decide whether it's impossible or not a little later in the sermon. Second point is, according to this verse, is that unity is a major emphasis in Paul's writings. We see it. Now, I'm going to put a little chart up there for you. I think it's going to come up next. And this chart is, has godly and ungodly in it and unity and division. 
And so the part that we're focused on here initially is godly unity, right? That's that top left quadrant. When there's godly unity, there's usually cooperation. Let me give you some verses you can fill in that upper left quadrant of that box. I'll give you a bunch of verses. I'll read them. You just write the reference down. Ephesians 4.3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 1 Corinthians 1.10, all of you agree with one another, no divisions among you. To the Corinthians, he said, there will be no divisions to be, uh, be of the same mind and of the same judgment. 1 Corinthians 1.10, and then in 2 Corinthians 13.11, he says, be like-minded, live in peace. Now, I'm only giving you just a handful, a thumbnail sketch of what the Bible says about godly unity. Let me give you a couple more. Philippians 1.27, one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And Philippians 2.2, probably the most famous unity verse in the Bible, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. So all those verses speak to godly unity. But what about godly division? You say, whoa. See, we always camp in the upper left-hand corner, but there is a time and a place in a church for godly division. Put that up there. Godly division. And with that, you get commitment and consecration. All right? Commitment and consecration. Now you say, that's an old school word. When there's godly division, let me give you some examples of godly division in the Bible. First one and the most obvious one that everybody thinks of is Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Timothy actually were co-writing this book, some think. But Paul and Barnabas, they had such a strong reaction, they parted ways. Now we know they somehow patched it up because John Mark was the issue there and when it was all said and done, who comes to visit Paul in prison at the end of his life? John Mark does. Interesting enough, we don't know that Barnabas does, but I do believe they, they, they parted ways eventually. At the time, it didn't look very good. Ephesians 4, 15 says, speak the truth in love. We've talked about it over and over again. There's some uh, ability for us to speak truth into someone's life. Romans 12, 18. For as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It makes an assumption that if you have to be at peace with all men, there may be at times that you're not at peace with some men. And if there's some divisive part with you and somebody else, from your standpoint, you're gonna reach out as ministers of peace to try to make it right. Romans 14, 19. Make every effort to do what leads to peace. Now there was godly division in the New Testament. How about Jesus and who? Where was the godly divide? Jesus and the Pharisees. Now you say, well they weren't very godly, but Jesus was, and he says no. Now he went on to say some things that are very difficult to, and we probably wouldn't get away with saying this. What did he call the Pharisees? He called them white-washed sepulchers or tombs. Wow, that's pretty strong words. There was a division there. Jesus and the money changers. Now you'd say, well, that's not fair because Jesus is godly and the money changers and the Pharisees may be in the ungodly character, uh, category. All I'm trying to say is when there's a godly division, these things ought to be true. Get your pens. Let me give you some principles here. Number one, is this a biblical issue that you're dis disagreeing about or a wisdom issue? If it's a biblical issue, you maybe need to part ways. You maybe need to part ways. Number two, does your opinion or conviction become my moral imperative? You see, oftentimes we are on hobby horses or things that we're passionate about, and it's good to be passionate about, but just give room for the rest of the body of Christ that maybe they're not quite as passionate as you are about that topic. Some of you are super pro-life, I am too. Some of you are very committed to homeschooling. Some of you are committed to family devotions. Some of you are committed to being a, a salt and light in your community. Some of you are committed to, and I'm picking things that we're involved in, Awana. Some of you are committed to uh, Agape. Some of you are committed to eating. <laughs> I was stretching there, I, uh, maybe. You know, the bottom line is, if you're dividing over some of these things, or should we? Should they be a godly division? And here's my third point under that. 
Is our separation or division over a core doctrinal issue or is it over a preference? Please, please do not miss this. When it's a godly division that God to say, okay, you, you can part ways, it should be over a core doctrinal issue. This is why those who are unchurched don't get us in the Protestant church. If they come from a Catholic deal, they go, hey, it's a Catholic church. Boom. Then you come to Protestant and you try to explain to them, and what about the Protestant church? Well, there are Baptists, there are Lutherans, there are Episcopalians, there are wannabe Catholics, but they're afraid, so they stay on the Protestant side. Uh, there are, uh, well, and then you get into the Baptists. Well, there's lots of Baptists, and they, can you see why the world's going, huh? Well, there's conservative Baptists, there's Baptist General Con Conference, who are now Converge, uh, there are a, a general association of regular Baptists, uh, there are American Baptists, Southern, there's, there's all this stuff, and you say, did they divide? Well, in there, in all those different Baptist denominations, for them, they divided over some core doctrinal issue. But if the truth be known, whether two or three Baptists are gathered together, there are seven opinions. You know, I can say that because I'm ordained in the Evangelical Free Church, which means nothing other than the fact that we have a big tent. One of the funniest things that ever happened to me when I was pastoring at Moore Park was a guy came to church. He goes, I like this Evangelical Free thing. I go, why? Because apparently you don't have to give money to this church. It's free. <laughs> uh, not so much, but I'll come back next week. The other thing that we might have a godly division over is this, is it something that's immoral, unethical, or illegal? So when you're saying this is a godly division, is it over a core doctrinal issue, or is it, or is it something that's immoral, unethical, or illegal? I was working with a church that uh, was having a little conflict, and I shared with them this concept. And I said, really it comes down to, in life, there are three buckets. Imagine three buckets. And I'll ask you the same questions I ask them. Is this something that's worth dying for? That it'll never change, you, that you'll, yeah, I just, I'll, I'll die for that. The second bucket is, is something you're gonna defend? It's something that you're willing to, to debate vigorously. I'm gonna defend this. Or is it in the third bucket? Is it something I, I should discuss? That I should debate? One of the wonderful things about being at this church and running a little staff meeting on Tuesdays is our staff loves to discuss and debate and to talk. You know, that's not my, thus saith John, this is what we're doing. We engage on a whole different level. By the way, the board does too. Anybody who has a brain in their head should be willing to debate or discuss things, but you have to be able to agree to disagree without causing sin among us. Let me confess to you right now, there are very, very few things I'm gonna die for and they tend to be around people, not doctrine. I'll die for that woman in the front row. I'll die for my kids. You come in to my house and try to do harm to my family, I mean, what's on, what's off, all right? And I don't even own a gun, but these are lethal. These are lethal. I'm gonna sneeze on a Kleenex and come after you with it. You watch out. So there's very few things really in life that we're gonna die for, right? But there are some things that we should defend rigorously. All defend rigorously and religiously and passionately Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm gonna defend passionately that Jesus Christ can change your life. But I'll tell you what, I'm not gonna die or try to defend really passionately when the tribulation comes. Now I know for most of you, you are praying to God it's a pre-trib rapture. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, that's what I'm saying, see, it's like who cares? Because here's how you play it in the end times. If it, you're praying for pre-trib and that we go before the seven years of wrath. If it's not, you quickly move to the mid-trib position. <laughs> Praying to God it's, we're not, that those guys from Westmont were right and that it's post-trib. And if we're, it's post-trib, then we're hoping at least it's pre-wrath. I mean, I'm just telling you, there's so many choices here. If you're a little confused today, join the company of the committed. It's all going to pan out in the end, all right? And so 
very few things am I going to defend passionately, but I'm going to defend Jesus. I'm going to defend the inerrancy of the word of God. I'm going to defend the fact that God is sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay for the penalty of our sins. And it's by his personal substitutionary atonement that I accept the free gift of eternal life and that I trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. I'll defend that. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff that I'm willing just to discuss. And I'm I'm willing to debate you about it. I might be right, I might be wrong. But I'll tell you what, it's not worth dividing over. That third bucket is not worth dividing over. And so it comes down to when you have a godly division or you think you gotta be awfully careful to make sure that this division isn't a pride issue. Is it just a wisdom issue? Is it about something that maybe we could agree to disagree and it's just how we do ministry might be a little different? We're making some changes, for instance, in the agape ministry. We want our kids to be involved in the worship on Sunday mornings, just not once a year on tour or you know, once at Christmas. We want to be involved in the body of the church every month. That's a change. We'd like to see that that our kids who are singing not just are on the stage to sing, but they have a spiritual capacity that they know how to share their faith as part of why we do music. And so when we talk about this pride issue and a godly division, I think people say, oh, this is worth dividing over. Is it? Is it? Or am I just being stubborn and inflexible? Folks that are married, how many times have you had division among you and you were both right. Raise your hands if you were both right. Of course, we always think we're right. And, and we fight over things and we, what we start at and where we end at is a rabbit trail of unbelievable proportions and we wonder how we got there because we're stubborn, we're prideful, we won't admit that we're wrong. And if you don't think that you're always right, just think how many times you think the other person is clueless. You think it, you just don't say it. They're clueless. Can't they see? Can't they see this is right? One of the things that Nate and Abby are gonna experience on the missions field. Do you know that the number one reason why missionaries leave the field? It's not over finances. It's not over joy of ministry. It's not over they're not doing what they're called to do. The number one reason why missionaries leave the field is because they can't get along with each other. Now they're gonna be in an interesting situation because they're gonna go with a tribe. They just got the two of them and a tribe. They better be able to get along with each other because they got no one else to turn to but them and God. So that's the whole idea of godly division. Now what's the third quadrant down below there? That's what we call ungodly unity. Ungodly unity. And with that, you get compromise. Ungodly unity. Now, you see that in the scriptures in several places. Let me get, I would uh, support that Genesis 11, that the Tower of Babel is ungodly unity, coming together for the wrong purposes. Anytime you have an Israeli or a, a king of Judah marrying into a, another family for political reasons, ungodly unity. Ahab and Jezebel, uh, Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, Um, In a modern day context, ungodly unity is a believer marrying an unbeliever. That's an ungodly unity. And so we we see that. I won't camp on that, but I I believe this. When there's ungodly unity, what we find is that we form unholy alliances to position ourselves for something else. I'll just leave, I, I, I could, I spent a lot of time just in that quadrant. I don't have the time this morning. But ask yourself, when there's an ungodly alliance, is it for positioning in some other arena of your life? And I certainly don't want to be united over the wrong things. So we have godly unity that produces cooperation. We have godly division, which produces commitment and kind of separation or consecration. We have ungodly unity, which almost always results in compromise especially with the word of God. And then the one that is dastardly that destroys churches is ungodly division. Ungodly division. 
And if you get that, you're getting up with competition and conflict in a church. I know we want to be in the upper left-hand corner, but friends, I tell you this with love. We've had a lot of this in the bottom right-hand corner over the last couple years. You say, but it's not us. Um, Maybe it's not. I don't know who it is, but I know there's been ungodly division. By the way, every person that left the church isn't categorically categorized as someone in the bottom right-hand corner. If they left the church, maybe they left because of biblical reasons. But my guess is, and oftentimes when church goes through this kind of struggle and transition, People generally aren't leaving over a doctrinal issue. Your doctrine's strong here. It's a sad thing. You know what? They leave because their feelings were hurt. They leave because they don't feel they were heard. Or they leave because they've been wounded. They leave because of misinformation or miscommunication. And I know it's really quiet in here, and believe me, I agonized over this text about whether I'd say that to you. Nobody wants that bottom right-hand corner. Nobody. But when it happens, we feel it. Some of you are feelers. I mean, you just walk into a room and you go, woo, the vibe is not right here. And now, some of you who are very concrete, sequential, don't let the feelers freak you out because you think like, do, 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 do. It's, you know, a twilight zone moment here. No, there are people who just sense it like something's just not right. Please do not dismiss those people as like, whatever, like, yeah, that's good for you. Show me the facts. You see, I can get that. I'm, I'm a real concrete, sequential person. And I want to tell you somebody that I've begun to love, and he's sitting right here in the front row, and he's hating this. But I'm telling you, the guy does at times. He feels certain things, and he goes, I don't even know how to put this in words. But you know who else I've really come to love? Is Bill Berry and Caleb Standifer and all the rest of the elders because you know what? They have some deep wisdom and insight and they don't say everything that they could have said and oftentimes to their detriment and they sit on it. And so I'm telling you, when you're in this bottom right-hand quadrant, it's usually not a doctrinal issue. Where do we see ungodly division in the Bible? How about Cain and Abel? Cain and Abel, I'm telling you, from the very first family, we were messed up. Here's a little encouragement for families. For I think 99% of you, I'm pretty sure that nobody in the room today has a son who had a hit on younger brother. They may put the pound on him and a little noogie, but I mean, he's alive at least. I mean, Cain knocks off Abel. By the way, students, this is not an excuse to say, Pastor John says that I can come just short of killing you. <laughs> uh, we're, not, we're not really saying that, right? Right? Sometimes I love you, I just don't like you, all right? How about James and John versus the whole rest of the disciples? Look at me, I want to sit the right hand. Ungodly division. How about the Corinthian church? You can always tell if your pastor loves you or doesn't love you. If he starts preaching through 1 Corinthians, we got trouble in River City, I'm telling you. Because look at all the things that are messed up about the church, and then they go, and, and us as a church, maybe we should take some hints from here, right? How about the James 4 selfishness that's described? That's ungodly division. Now I realize I've parked a long time on one point, but I gotta tell you, Paul's prayer for the Colossian church is that there would be unity. My wish for us as a church that we would maintain that unity, develop that unity, pray for that unity. Because as you are unified and people see that you love one another, that's a pretty attractive statement to any new pastor coming to this church. Man, these people actually like each other. That's a concept. Number three, third prayer list or wish list of Paul. 
was that they would revel in God's secret plan, which is Christ. Look at verses, end of verse two, for part of verse three. To reach all riches of fullness, assurance of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. The mystery was Christ. Now we said last week that first of all, this mystery is Christ in you. And last week we discovered that this was twofold mystery. Number one, that Christ was the answer to the sacrificial system. He was the Messiah. But number two, the second mystery is that this gospel is not just for the Jewish nation, but for all the Gentiles as well. That was a mystery. And what does he say as a result of Christ being in you is that he gives us full and complete assurance. Assurance of what? Of your salvation. You see, a lot of people read a lot of books about assurance of salvation, but I believe that their primary issue is a lack of knowledge. It's the failure to apply the truth they already know. That's the basis of your assurance, that you trust the facts of the word of God, not your feelings. If in fact you doubt whether you're a Christian, I would just suggest to you, can you point back to a time where you know you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? I told you about my salvation experience. It was January 8th, 1963 as a six-year-old. You know, Jonathan Edwards, I told you the whole deal. That was as a first grader. But it was in eighth grade, between eighth grade and ninth grade, where I received what I would call this assurance of salvation. For once and for all, I planted a stake in the ground saying, I am going to be a Christ follower. Whether my parents do or don't, whether my friends do or don't, I got back from that camp and it was a very calculated, non-emotional choice on my part. And I was one of those weird kids. I'm, none of, these days are like all normal, but I was weird, all right? I was weird in a sense because I think for most kids my age, going from eighth grade to ninth grade, I thought really deeply about complex subjects. And that was unexpected, because I was an athlete. And you know, athletes are supposed to be like, duh, you know? And I actually thought about stuff, like how do we know there's a God? Why do we have to trust in Jesus Christ? Why did he have to die on the cross? Why are there so many different denominations? What if we're wrong? What if they're right? And I suspect, having spent a little time with these guys, that's the kind of ministry we're developing with our kids, to teach them how to think, not what to think, but how to think. Parents, don't just regurgitate what to think. Teach your kids how to think critically. Why do you believe what you do? That's why we're doing the Truth Project every Sunday morning. Rocky, thank you for doing that because we gotta help people think critically in terms of their worldview. And so he will not only give you assurance, but he will give you wisdom and knowledge. That word hidden is the word where we get the Catholic word apocrypha. And it's this, 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 um, this idea that he was confronting was these heretics thought that there was all this secret knowledge. This secret knowledge. There isn't secrets, friends. Here's, here's a clue, it's right here. You say, but I need some new truth. You know what, I got so much truth I haven't applied, I gotta just deal with the stuff I do know. I really don't know when God, Jesus is coming back. I know a lot of you like to study the end times and revelation. I got a lot of work to do before Jesus comes back. How about you? I gotta, I gotta understand how is it that I, as a Christ follower, make stupid choices still? It's called sin. But I wanna become more like Christ and so I don't need any some special wisdom. In fact, what he's confronting is these heretics who were the forerunners of the Gnostics later in the third century that there was some hidden spiritual treasure and by the way, you can only get it from me. You can't get it for yourself. You know one of the greatest inventions of all time is not the iPad. It was the printing press. Why? Because what did the printing press allow us to do? to put the word of God on paper. There were no more papyruses and everyday people could look and read and study the word of God. Why do you think they're going to Indonesia? Because there's people who still don't have the word of God in their own language and it's like speaking gibberish to them because they're not gonna hear about Jesus unless they can understand it. You say, but, can't they just read the English revised version? 
No. They don't even read. These, there's literacy issues. You've got to go hear what they're going to do. You want to be passionate about changing the world? Go support them. Because then there'll be people who can read the Bible in their own language. How many of you know another language, by the way? God bless you. I know a little Spanish. I say this to Javier every Tuesday. Hola, como estas? He says, estoy bien, gracias. Y tú? I go, I'm down with that. I, I think I know what that means. <laughs> or I go, yo, que pasa? You know? I don't know anything. I, I can't even fathom that you're going to learn some language. First, you're going to crack the language, then you're going to learn the language, then you're going to translate the language. And then there's going to be a point in time, 10 or 15 years from now, talk about no reinforcement, maybe 10 years down the ride, somebody's going to come to faith in Christ because he spent 10 years or more of his life so they could see Jesus. If that doesn't do something deep, deep in your soul, you've got to ask yourself, when did I quit feeling pain about lost people? Now, I realize I'm an emotional mean bag. I get it. I'm about to be a grandfather and, you know, whatever. You can come up with other excuses. But you know what? I know this. When I hear about lost people coming to faith, people who are far from God coming into the kingdom, crossing the line of faith, accepting Jesus Christ, use whatever term you want. When I hear that, that's why I live, I live for that. I live to see Jesus change lives. That's what we should be living for. Not to make a living, to make a difference. And so in Christ, there's no surprise. It's Jesus. You say, what about what Jesus and what else? No, it's Jesus. Jesus plus baptism? No, Jesus. Jesus plus the word of God? No, Jesus. Now all those things are important. How about the church? Yep, church is okay, but it's Jesus. There's a great book out around. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He's a relative of Billy Graham. Good guy. He's got a name I can't pronounce. He pastors a church in Florida. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So in Christ is the central theme of this book, if we haven't figured that out, right? In Christ is the central theme. In whom we have redemption, chapter 1, verse 14. We already saw that. In him all things were created, chapter 1, verse 16. In him all the fullness of God dwells, chapter 1, verse 9. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. We just saw that in verse 3. That we would walk in him, verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 6. And that we'll see this, that we would be rooted and built up in him in chapter 2, verse 7. Redemption, created, fullness, hidden, walk, built up. I got to thinking, by the way, the other day, as a result of Men's Summit, they always put the answers to the fill-ins at the end of the book. I might print the fill-ins upside down in .8 font at the bottom of the outline. Maybe that would help us, right? Redemption created, fullness hidden, walk and built up. That's what in Christ means. Are we excited about Jesus? Or is he just a concept? Anybody can put a bumper sticker on their car. But when you're excited about Jesus, you ooze Jesus. Jesus comes out of the pores of your body, so to speak. Your first thoughts in the morning is, Jesus, thank you for giving me another day. The last thought on your mind is, Jesus, thank you for giving me the opportunity to make a difference today. Side tangential comment. You want to sleep better at night? Take five minutes to read the word of God and let the last thoughts in your brain be God's word. Not who won game five. Not your favorite TV show. You know, the last thoughts I put in my kids' heads for years, and yea, thus verily, they were into their teenage years. Yes, I knelt and prayed with them for Till they were out of my house was Jesus. We'd talk about a lot of different things, but we'd finally get down to it. Jesus was the last part of our conversation. And I'd hug him like I'd never want to let go, kiss him goodnight, and say, sweet dreams. And I prayed that my kids would dream about Jesus at night. You say, oh, pastor, you are just a wacky guy. 
Seriously, that they'd have dreams about Jesus? Yeah, I, I, I stand convicted. I'd rather them think about Jesus as they go to bed than Freddie or Elm Street or any other thing that they would have been exposed to that day. And so is Jesus the central theme of not just this book, is Jesus the central theme of your life? I'm stuck here. And I'm gonna do something I have not done before. Chad, get on the panel here for a second. We're right in the middle of this sermon and I don't wanna just rush. I don't wanna rush to get to point four, which will lead me to point five, and um, I think it's gonna have to wait for another day. So forgive me that I didn't fill it all in for you today. I think we got enough to unpack right now. And so I want you to start writing. I want you to start writing on those cards in front of you, and I want you to write, what is your dream for this church? I've only got through three of Paul's dreams. He agonized for them, love, and realized that there's a struggle. He prayed for unity for them. And then he reveled in Christ. That was his three of the five things. We'll pick up this next week. So start writing, would you? What is your dream for this church? What is on your wish list? You say, I'm, I'm relatively new here. Great. Write something. Been here for years? Go ahead and write. Write something. What is it your dream for this church? And as we sing, you can keep writing. And if you're kind of embarrassed, just send your kids up. Send them up with, for your whole family. Put five things in this box. I don't care. Some of you are sitting there going, I'm not sure I've ever thought about that. I I need some time to reflect on that. Okay, start reflecting right now. What is your dream for us? Everybody. You don't have to put your name on it. Write legibly so we can look at it. Okay, this, this may be something that um, you're a little uncomfortable with. Nate, you still have that mic? Bring it up here, would you? What is your dream for our church? What is something that God's laying on your heart? It's on your wish list. It could be one sentence. What is, the, what is your dream for our church? Who wants to go first? Brian, say it loud and then we'll go to this young lady. Go for it. That we don't have anybody here on the sidelines, that we're all involved in blessing and loving and growing our church. Okay. What's your dream for our church? Somebody was over here. I've been at ABF for a long time, almost 20 years. Um, Better communication, better listening, more encouragement, unity although we disagree about the non-essentials and winning the lost in our community because I think people will be drawn to those things they'll see Christ in it Amen. What's your wish your dream for our church? Yes 
For those of you who are old enough to remember this, I feel like Phil Donahue running to the... I prayed for years, uh, John, for unity and love and openness. I prayed under trees and prayed around corners. But there's been a group of us that have been in prayer for just that long for God's Holy Spirit to profess himself in our unit. And it's happened. It is in the, it's, it's a glorious thing. I'm, I'm thrilled, just thrilled. Thank you. One or two more. Yes. A new pastor. Yeah. We're praying for a new pastor. Amen. Amen. Who wants the last word? My prayer is that we would love and care for one another. Amen. You see, a wish can go beyond a wish if we just say, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it a priority. I'm going to change the way I've done business. Four and a half years ago, my wife and I decided that we seriously had to take prayer more as a part of our routine. And I'm not bragging, I'm just saying, but I prayed more in the last four and a half years than the previous 25 years of our marriage combined. It's changing our marriage. We prayed this morning. Now, for those of you, again, you're multitaskers. I can't just sit and pray. That's right. We walk and pray. Exercise and prayer. It works. And a little communication. Find out what your dream is for this church and keep writing. And then I want dozens of you to stuff this box. Because we want, as a staff, an elder, pray over your dreams for this church. Amen. So we're going to worship. Put your cards in the box. If you're afraid to come up during the song, just come after the service, but this is not a big deal. Write it down, put it in here. Then I'll close with some prayer as we worship. Let's uh, conclude our service. And now to him who's able to keep you from falling, to the only wise God who is the mystery that has been revealed, the one who gives us unity in the body, that we revel in your greatness and in your power and your majesty. It's unto you, Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. High school, junior high, go ahead next for small groups. You are on. God bless.